nation I sing praise to the King of Kings. You are my everything, and I will holy, 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 holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Praise to the King of Kings. You are my everything, and I will adore you. Today, we are looking at a standalone sermon in the Gospel of Mark, which I'm actually really excited about this. So if you turn to Mark chapter 4, this is a famous parable of the sower. Mark chapter 4. So the New Testament, about three books in, no, two books in, excuse me, in the New Testament. And uh, let me read this, verses 1 through 20. This is a word of the Lord. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat, and he sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things and parables, and in his teaching he said to them, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched since it had no root, and it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and yielded it no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil, produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold. Sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. 
the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others who are the ones sown among thorns, they are the ones who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, in this room this morning as your saints are gathered, as each week we come together, Lord, remembering that this is the day of the week that you defeated and you conquered death. And Lord, we remember that every single week. We recognize that your resurrection, in a way, has called us weekly to gather and to worship and to Uh, have an open heart to receive what you have to speak to us, Lord. You came to this earth to begin, Lord, this new age of renewal. Lord, that in your patience and forbearance and mercy, uh, you have extended this for 2,000 years, Lord. We don't know the day you will return, but Lord, as we are here this morning in just uh, very interesting times that history books forever will write about, Uh, You you have allowed us who are alive today to experience these things and to be among them. But Lord, I pray for every single person in this room that your spirit will be uh, the strongest presence in their life. And they they will see that and they will know that, Lord. And that through your word, which is alive, which is breathing, which, which cuts to the core of our souls at this morning, this parable would do that. Only that you may be more glorified in our lives. Only that you may be our greatest love. I pray for any in our body who are sick, Lord, right now. Or that you would heal them, Lord. Protect us, Jesus, from this pandemic, Lord. Uh, for our loved ones, Lord, um, in this holiday season coming up that we may be blessings to them through our love, Lord, opportunities to share with them and show them the good news of your son. So, Lord, this morning as we uh, sit here, Lord, uh, anxious to hear what you have to speak to us, may your word do its work. We love you, Jesus, so much. We pray this in your name. Amen. So, after much prayer and thought, I landed on walking through this parable with you guys this morning. Uh, This pandemic is only heightening. It's raising. I think they just said um, one out of every 333 people in Delaware uh, tested positive last week alone, right? So it's definitely picking up in our state. Um, And I wanted to look at this parable because right now, um, the basic, we never graduate from the basics of our faith. We never graduate from the gospel as if, oh, that stuff, I heard that when I became a Christian. Give me the more meatier stuff. No, the gospel is the meat. The gospel is the center of everything for us. And this parable 
um, it really talks about what it means to be in the kingdom of God. It is the first of Mark's kingdom parables, and it talks about how we should respond to the word that God sows in our life, as well as what we should expect when that word is sown deep and it bears fruit in our life. So I will go ahead and spoil the meaning for you today. Uh, all, most everybody agrees that in this passage, the word represented by the sower seed, Jesus is talking about himself. All throughout the gospel in Mark, Jesus so far in these early chapters has been placing himself as the one through his audience must enter if they are to be in the kingdom of God. He himself stands as the one by whom we know God or don't know God. There is no other way. And as he worked through this parable, it is known as the parable of the sower and not a parable of the four soils. This parable is primarily about God being the sower, primarily about his work in his people through the word Jesus Christ by the Spirit. And we need right now as a church to remind ourselves of some of these basics as there are many things right now calling for the loyalty of our hearts. This is a God-centered parable, not a me-centered parable. And in fact, as we will see, the me-centeredness is what brings out the upside-downness of this parable, if you will. So once again, we're going to hear the good news of Jesus this morning. We're going to look at the three ways that we can have the Word of God robbed from us, and the fourth um, in terms of how we can take root and bear fruit in Jesus. So the first being, how can Satan himself rob the Word of God from us? Number two, how can trials rob the Word of God from you? Three, how can the cares and desires of this world rob the Word of God from you? And four, we'll look at the kind of faith that we must be open to in our lives as represented by that fourth soil. Ultimately, this is a sermon of invitation for the sower, which is God, to further and sow deep in our hearts through his spirit, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you are a Christian this morning, have been for some time, this is still a sermon for you. If you, if you are still on that journey, this sermon is also for you. So let's jump in here at verse 1. Again, he began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and set in on it in the sea, set in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. Now we are jumping in on, the four, on chapter four of Mark. I don't have a lot of time to set up everything for us. But this far in, gospel, in the gospel of Mark, we have seen, if you were to read it, Jesus be baptized. Mark's gospel is fast. His favorite word is immediately, immediately. Jesus is like on the run in the gospel of Mark. It's a shorter one of the four, and Jesus is just sprinting from one thing to the next. He is a man on a mission. So far, he has healed people from physical blindness. He has uh, delivered people from demonic possession, healed people from physical ailments, all the while talking about uh, the kingdom of God and saying that it has arrived. To set the subject for the entire book of Mark, Mark begins with these words. The beginning of the gospel, the evangelion, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So what is the gospel? Well, some would say it's a message, and we say yes. It's a message, but it's more than that. It's the gospel of Jesus. It's the gospel of a person 
Jesus being himself the good news. As John famously wrote at the beginning of his gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. This Jesus is the good news, and he is the Word of God himself. So keeping all of these things in mind, we can rightly understand why a massive crowd was following him. After seeing him do all of these miraculous things and speaking with amazing authority, these crowds were hungry for more of Jesus. And perhaps, which is often in the Gospel of Mark, these crowds had mixed motivations of why they wanted Jesus, which I think you and I can relate to. Verse 2 says this, 4 verse 2, And he was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, So in our passage, he gets in a boat, he kind of wavers out, the crowd is huge, he's getting crowded around, he's like, I have to back up here, I get in the boat, they're they're getting too close to me here. Everyone sits by the water, Jesus puts the anchor down, he's on his boat, he stands probably, and he's teaching, but he's teaching in parables. Now a parable is not a literal story, okay? It is um, more often than not, uh, these stories that go unexplained, but these parables serve as some kind of like spiritual kind of moral purpose in the teachings of Jesus. And like I said, most of them are just said by him without much explanation. Thankfully today, Jesus actually said, this is what it means, which makes our job a little bit easier, right, this morning. So in the Gospel of Mark, uh, crowds are almost never seen in a positive light. They are the ones wanting more from Jesus, and often for the wrong reasons. They're the ones wanting to see more signs, right? Jesus, show me something cool. Show me a sign, right? Or we're hungry, Jesus. Feed us. Or I need to be healed, Jesus. Few come with a heart to actually receive Jesus himself. Famously shown by the story of the ten lepers when all ten were healed and only one came back to worship Jesus. And staying true to this tone at the beginning of Jesus' parable, he knows the hearts of the crowd there, and he says this. He says, listen, everybody, open up your ears. You need to hear this. Listen. Behold, a sower went out to sow, verse 3. Although not explicitly mentioned here, but only alluded to as the parable is told, it's pretty bold of Jesus to say that word, listen, basically saying, listen to me. Not listen to the word of the Lord, like the prophets in the Old Testament would do, but rather, listen. He is speaking with authority that really only comes from his divinity as the Son of God. So he's speaking with authority. Listen to me, says Jesus. The sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. So some seeds fell on the path, and the birds came and ate all of this up. Now you think about a path that is well-traveled. The dirt is nicely compounded by the feet that are walking over it regularly. The soil is hardened, and it is pressed. Pretty ambitious move to want to plant seed on such a place. But however, the birds came, and before the plowing was done, the seeds still laying fresh on the path were swallowed and eaten up. The next seed fell on rocky ground, verse 5, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. When the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. 
Now some seeds fell on that rocky ground, and Israel was an agricultural and agrarian community, as most places in the world were in those days, and most places that were not urban were. Um, his audience would have been very familiar with this problem because they were all somewhat involved in these farming practices. If you plant on rocky soil, that seed rises up of what little dirt is there, but that root keeps going down, and it hits that rock. There's nowhere for it to go. And the summer sun rises, and it burns up that plant. Maybe some of you have tried to plant gardens in rocky soil and seen that happen as well. Verse 7 continues on. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew and choked it up, and it yielded no grain. Although not exactly thorns, uh, in Jersey, I would plant a garden most years, and I planted, uh, I didn't know what I was doing. This is like year two, I think. I planted pumpkins in my little bitty garden. And if you have ever planted pumpkins, know that you can't plant pumpkins in a little bitty garden because they cover everything instantly. And so before I knew it, I had vines that had choked up everything. The leaves huge and just spread everywhere and just took out all of my plants, right? So not exactly thorns. That's kind of the image here, right? There's, there's thorns. There's things trying to grow up and it's just crowded out by these weeds and these vines and these thorns and it gets choked out and cannot see the light of the sun and it withers away. And then verse 8, the other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. If you were the original audience, okay, the best way you can translate this is like you going and spending a dollar on a lottery ticket to get a million dollars back, okay? That's the idea here. They planted one plant, and you get a hundredfold from one plant. That's a hundred plants equivalent to one plant, right? This is incredible stuff. This is an all, like an astonishment kind of statement, uh, an outlandish statement by Jesus to this farming community, right? Because who could fathom of a tomato plant that gives you a hundred tomato plants worth of tomatoes, right? Uh, could you fathom that? Well, Jesus says that's what the good soil is like in the kingdom of God. So that's the kingdom parable, but its interpretation is sandwiched between some, I would say, rather difficult verses. In the whole of the gospel of Mark, these are the toughest ones to wrestle with. So let's, let's, let's look at them. There's an Old Testament quote that we stumble upon here in the middle of this. After Jesus said all of it, right, he was alone. After stating in verse 9, he who has ears, let him hear. And then he walks away and he's alone, okay? And he's with his 12 disciples and some other people from the crowd kind of came up to Jesus and he's with them. The rest of the crowd leaves. And basically they're like, all right, so now they're gone, Jesus. Um, what are we talking about? We don't really understand what's going on. Which is often, if you pay attention to the disciples, that's often it. It's like one time Jesus said, you know, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. They're like, oh man, we forgot bread. I'm hungry. And Jesus is like, I'm not talking about actual bread. This is normal for the disciples, right? They're having a hard time tracking with Jesus. And they're like, hey Jesus, uh, please tell us what's up. What's going on here? We don't know what you said. And this is what, how he responds, which is very interesting. He says, to you speaking to this smaller group, the 12 and some others, to you have been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. If you're an honest reader this morning, coming from the mouth of Jesus, that sounds rather odd, 
right? Uh, but there's a reason why Jesus did not explain the parable's meaning in detail to the whole crowd. This is part of the mystery of our faith. As this is quoted from the book of Isaiah chapter 6, the best I can describe it to you is like this. My wife, uh, she grew up hearing the gospel regularly, going to a Bible preaching church. Even her family didn't quite identify as Christians, but more Sundays than not, they were still attending a church much like this one up in North Jersey. She heard the gospel her whole childhood, even had a Bible she would read pretty regularly, and I verified the story with her this morning before I told it, and she's fine, I'm saying it (laughs) on her permission, but it's part of her testimony, right? She was familiar with the good news of Jesus, but one day, somebody hands her um, from a group called the Christian Surfers, and this is on the Jersey Shore here, and uh, it was a Bible from the Christian Surfers, and so she opens it up, sitting in a room to the Gospel of John, and she reads it. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And suddenly she reads that and she goes, okay, I think I'm a Christian. I believe. What was different? She heard that message her whole life. Why in that one moment suddenly did it just find its seed and bury into her heart? And she goes, yep, I need this. I need to be a Christian. I need to be baptized. What happened? Why then and not the other times? And this is a mystery of our faith. It's ultimately the work of God that is required to really get that seed planted where it takes root okay? Other people may be watering it and, and, and planting all the time, but it is God who causes the growth, says 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and that is what happened in that moment. And this is why we must make a call, because Jesus knew the crowd wasn't ready yet. He knew that they were there for other reasons, and they weren't quite ready to really receive that word. And you and I, we must be open to God's work in our life, knowing that there's only so much that we can do, and how much we must be utterly dependent on the supernatural work of God and His Spirit to say, Lord, make your word come alive in my life. I want it. I need to be more open to your Spirit's work in my life for these seeds that I've heard my whole life to really take root and do this inner transformative work that I so desperately need. This is the nature of our faith to say, Lord, whatever it takes to allow you to sow your word into my life, may I be open to it. It can even be said that sometimes people are not open to it. And even sometimes God still forces his way into people's life. But as it is up to us, the call is to be open to the work of God by his spirit in your life. And I want to look at what that ultimately means throughout Jesus' interpretation of his parable here. Beginning of verse 14, he starts laying it out to him. He says, the sower sows the word. We can capitalize that if you want to go ahead and do that, right? The word. He knows what he's talking about, which is himself. The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and he takes away the word that is sown to them. Now Jesus says in verse 15 that it is Satan, as represented by the birds, who comes and snatches up those seeds on the rocky path. Now, if you didn't know this, Satan is better translated as the Satan. It's how you pronounce the Satan. That's how you would say that, actually. And it is not so much a name as it is a description of his work that has kind of taken as a personal name. But it's more, it really means the accuser. It's what the Satan means, the Satan, the accuser, one who accuses The nature of most, the vast majority of satanic attack isn't 
it's almost rarely, if ever, right? It does happen for sure, like the movies where the big supernatural kind of extraordinary events happen. This, you know, that can happen for sure. But most often, the vast majority of the time, Satan's work is in the form of subtle accusations aimed at you. Because Satan wants you to think about yourself in one of two ways. That you are a worthless, sinful person, unworthy of love, not valuable to others, in desperate need of other people's approval and love if you to are to um, have value, or two, that you are the greatest thing since sliced bread. And if only other people saw the world as you see it, that they would just be better off. Now, Satan wants you to know you're a sinner, but he wants you to fall into the guilt that leads to despair. Or, he wants you, like Adam and Eve so long ago, to think that you are even more important than you realize. In other words, both, are one, both have one thing in common. You are at the center of both of those, not God. Just like in Zechariah chapter 3 when the Satan actually says that he stands there accusing Joshua the high priest as Joshua stands there in his filthy, dirty clothing. Or like Herod, who stood before the crowd in Acts chapter, I don't know, 12 maybe, um, hearing the, 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 the voice of the crowd just, just chant, the voice of God and not of man, who he dropped dead after he received that glory, right? It is there that you can identify the work of Satan in your life. We'll talk more about that at the end of our sermon today. I want to continue on at verse 16. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. But when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. So the second soil the sower tosses the seed into that is of the rocky ground. The word of God spurts up really quickly and then vanishes away. Now in the context of this parable... It appears that Jesus was speaking to the crowds who apparently didn't have faith, but also his, his, to his disciples who were there who did have faith. So in an effort to really speak, um, uh, I don't know, to our current reality here in our world, uh, let's talk about how the trial of this pandemic for so many has unfortunately caused in our nation uh, some faith to not endure. These are some statistics according to the Barna Research Group, which uh, exists for the sake of studying the American church and providing reliable statistics on things. One out of every three practicing Christians in America left the church entirely during the pandemic. It's about 30%. Now here's an interesting question to explore. How did a pandemic cause people to leave the church as a whole? I got to say, I was pastoring during all this time, and that was really confusing for me, as even in Jersey, this was happening in our own church. I was meeting with people that I ministered to for years that were leaving the church, and I was scratching my head like, what is going on? What does a pandemic have to do with people's commitment to their church family? And I may be so bold as to say, your commitment to your church family is representative some, to some degree of your commitment to Jesus because this is his body after all. Now many, uh, maybe some of these people, imagine that Christianity is a private and individualistic religion 
rejecting the community and fellowship and accountability that naturally comes with being a part of a church family. That's Jesus' design for his body. And suddenly finding an opportunity to kind of get the best of, if you will, the church experience by having access to celebrity preachers on, on their, you know, virtual streams and realizing that that preacher preaches way better than the person who's at their church. And they can also sit at home and just watch this and kind of vanish from their church family, vanish from accountability, right? And just disappear into the comfort of their living room. I want to encourage you, though, because there's many people at Emmanuel who still are uncomfortable with being here on Sundays, but I talk to them almost weekly because they are actively still reaching out, actively still spending time with people in this church family. And if you're listening here, I want to thank you for that because um, it, it means a lot to see that people are willing to still invest into one another, even if they are uncomfortable with being here on a Sunday morning because ultimately church is more than our Sunday morning meetings, right? And so for those of you watching, thank you. You are a blessing still, even if you're not here. Um, But maybe others left because the church they've been a part of for so long took a different stance than theirs on the pandemic. Not taking it seriously enough or taking it too seriously. I know many people who uh, tried to switch churches or kept church hopping, and I know some that now don't go to church after hopping around because they couldn't find a church that agreed with them. Sadly, In churches, almost as much as in the nation, there is lots of infighting over this whole pandemic responses, Um, finding more reasons to be more divided than united. Now, the common denominator in all of this is this, still like the first one with the the satanic attacks, okay? The common denominator in in this soil is still you. Trials place you in a position to say what or who do you love most? Do you love yourself and your preferences more than anything else? Are you going to try to sidestep whatever challenge you may have in front of you, right, by focusing on yourself other than God and others? We are not used to trials and challenges in our, in our life in America. We've been so blessed with just comfort and ease in, uh, for most of our life. We are not a generation that has seen world war, right, or something as, as devastating as a Spanish flu. We, we, we are not a generation that has seen these things. We're used to being comfortable and having our freedoms and conveniences. I understand that. But the center of infighting across churches and in America is ultimately the individual. It's you. It's more of the American spirit that causes such infighting, looking for everyone to agree and to conform with your views, or you finding a group that agrees and conforms to your views. James 4.1 says it clearly. What causes quarrels and divisions among you? Is it not that you want what you want up and against others and often at the expense of others? That's my paraphrase of James chapter 4. This is dangerous ground of being that root. Before you know it, you may wither away yourself because God the sower sows his word, Jesus, in us by his spirit. He is sowing within our lives in order that we may be conformed to him. If you're looking for a Jesus that will always agree with you, I hate to say it, you're not going to find him in this Bible. Jesus is always going to challenge you to grow, to displace yourself from the center of your life and to love him more than anything else in your life and to set others as more important than yourself. And oftentimes, as I do, when I read this Bible, I still get mad at what Jesus says. And I'm like, that's so hard, Jesus. Really? Do you really expect that from me? Come on. 
because he is often at odds with my own fleshly sinful heart. That's what we call conviction of sin. It hurts. But the kind of the strange part, if you're here and you're feeling even convicted this morning, you know what's interesting about being convicted of sin? Sometimes if you feel it, you're almost like, oh, that hurts, Jesus. Tell me more. Because we know we need to grow, right? And we're like, oh, this is so hard to hear. I want to hear some more, Jesus, please. Because we want to grow. I know you're sitting here. You want to grow. And I'm, I'm trying to be honest as I can to, to, for, for us as a church to be open to God's work in our lives and to seek to be conformed to him before anything or anyone else. Verse 18 and 19 is, a, is the, the thorns. He says, and those are, others are the ones sown among thorns. They're the ones who hear the word, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. The final negative soil mentioned is that of the thorny soil, that it chokes uh, the, the, uh, out the word of God because of the cares of this world. And it kind of blends into the previous one in many ways. These are the false idols that we bow down to. Idols of money, of cheap pleasure, of leisure, of drink and escapism, self-worth and achievement, the desire to be loved or to please others. These are all the cares of the world that can choke out God's word in our hearts and are always, always, going to be much quicker and easier to grab and to latch on to than to our Lord Jesus, who asks us to crucify our flesh with all of its sinful desires, to die to ourself and be conformed to his likeness and to consider others as more important than ourself. Again, um, this is a life of self that this thorny uh, soil is talking about. It is a life that has you at the center, still a mechanism to sidestep God's word by something more palatable, something more accessible, a life spent on yourself, on your passions and your desires. If there's problems in your life, if you seem to be having a hard time getting along with people or with your spouse, if there's infighting going on, I, I, when I sit with people and I hear stuff like that, which is, you know, me, it happens to me and the best of us, right? You have to dig because somewhere in the middle of that fighting is going to be you to some degree, right? That you're, you're defending yourself. You want things that you want, and you're asking somebody else to, to bend their will to match yours, right? But the, this economy, if you will, of, of the church that says, no, 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 others are more important than yourself. Just be idealistic for me for here for a moment. If all of you consider the person next to you is more important than yourself, would everyone be loved in this room and cared for and served in this room? There'd be no neglecting of anyone in this room. And just by that pure idea there, you see God's beauty of design, right? But, play a game with me, if all of you were only concerned about yourself in this room, right? Imagine the chaos that would be happening with those kind of people trying to spend time with one another, right? And you see what God's redemption looks like when it blossoms in our life, when we embrace this, right? I want to I end those. You look at the back end of our sermon here. Um, this good soil. What does it mean when we start seeing that fruit we just briefly mentioned, right? When we're all loving and caring for one another and when that soil is, is implanted and God's word takes root and starts growing in our life, what does that look like? Verse 20 says, those that were sown on the good soil, the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. As we close, 
I want to close on Jesus' desire for you, for us, and see what he labels as evidence that the word he has sown in us has indeed taken root, because there is evidence of this. Continuing the farming images, he says that those who bear fruit show that God's sowing in their lives is ultimately fulfilling his agenda for us. Now, what does it mean to bear fruit? As it says, some bear this much fruit, 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold, and so forth, right? It's not really a matter of the number as it is that they are bearing fruit, What does it mean to bear fruit? It's a Christianese statement, bear fruit, right? What does it mean to bear fruit? What better place than to look at than the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5? Before he mentions this, once again, to revisit the opposite things of the fruit of the Spirit that this parable hit on, once again, Galatians 5, 19 through 21 says this, the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And we see how the gospels in these letters, New Testament, they, they blend together because in danger of being redundant here, we once again see the characteristics that we've hit on already, a life with self at the center. Fits of anger, dissensions, divisions, envy. In your life, whenever you place yourself as first before others, you will reap the fruit of what the Bible calls our flesh. And it will be up and against the seed of God that is sowing in your life. I remember when we, when we first, early in our marriage, um, we first started having kids. On Sunday afternoon, um, I used to love, I don't know what I used to watch on TV, but something. It's probably a baseball or something. And, you know, kids have a tendency to interrupt things. And I remember just getting, like, so mad. I was still ministering in those days and pastoring, and, and I would be exhausted on Sunday afternoons. And, you know, the kids would interrupt, and it's not like my wife wasn't tired, too, but somehow I didn't think about that. It was all about me, right? And my work, I was tired, and he would interrupt, and my son, Abel. And I remember one night just, or one afternoon, just flipping out on Alex, just like, take care of this kid. I'm laying down. I'm tired. I need my rest. And, you know, it's one of those moments. I never forget it. Like, the words are coming out of your mouth, and you're like, oh, no. Like, I I need to get these words and just kind of, like, put them back. Because it's almost like instantly you realize, like, what just happened, right? That I just had an outburst of anger because of me, 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 right? And then instantly I was just like, okay, sorry, sorry, I'm just going to take care of him. I'm sorry. You know, because you kind of become self-aware in that moment. That's what's going on here, right? But the fruit of the Spirit, what does that look like? Love and joy and peace. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. All of these things were present in Jesus Christ. This is why the gospel, the good news, is a person himself, Jesus Christ. Christ. He has shared himself with us by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And that is why we have hope. God's Spirit has filled those who have faith and and commitment and allegiance to him. And the church has become his body on earth, the embodiment of Christ on earth, however imperfect we are. A life of self at the center is what Satan wants 
for us. He wants your world to revolve around you. He wants you to dwell on that insecurity of yourself, to feel unworthy or feel overworthy. Divisions and strife and dissension is what our nation is becoming known by, and that is not the fruit of the Spirit. And if the church partakes in such division, we are not partaking in the Spirit, but in the flesh. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, always considering God and others before yourself is the only pathway to a life filled with the Spirit. And as we close, remember, this is the parable of the sower. This is ultimately God's work. Now, the parting question is this, the question I've been asking myself for quite a while now, I'm going to close with this. Are you open to this work in your life, to the sower sowing the seed in your life, to the sower bearing his fruit in your life. If we recognize this fruit-bearing soil is ultimately God's work, unleashing the power of the secrets of the kingdom of God, as Jesus said and called it to his disciples, are you open to this? Do you feel icky and dirty? And, you know, sadly, the church is not we haven't learned in quite some time how to talk about moral living without trying to set up laws to say, tisk tisk, if you are bad, don't be bad, be good. Like, I'm not trying to talk that way this morning. I'm trying to give you Jesus and say that the hope of humanity in this day is not just his return, which is our ultimate hope, our ultimate salvation when he renews all things, but the world, when they on look the life of the Christian that is full of, his, of God's spirit and his seed has taken deep root in our life and they see our lives mirror that of Jesus, there's going to be an anticipation we should have, as Peter said, of people saying, please tell me of this hope that lies within you. Peter says, be ready to give a defense for the hope that is in you, because people are going to ask questions when they see it, because it's not how the rest of this world operates. And I firmly believe that in this holiday season where we're going to be just experiencing lonelier Christmases, probably, right? Uh, fewer people around our dining room table. Some of you in this room have even lost people this year. Uh, depression right after the holidays usually skyrockets, and we can anticipate that even to be more so this year in our pandemic. And I'm ultimately challenging you guys to say, look, there is, in this difficult time, this is difficult work, okay? We're all going to be struggling to some degree, but this is still available to us. This kind of spirit-filled living of, of God's word deeply sown is still available to us, and are you open to this? And so as I ask that question, let me um, close, call the worship team up for the last song. Let me pray for you guys as we um, leave this place. Jesus, I ask that, um, Lord, to, to be that fourth soil that is primed and just, you know, rich and, 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 and dark and, you know, like the rich soil always is and just ready to be watered and to uh, be a fertile soil for your seed to take root, Lord. We, we want this, Lord, the, the tension of some of this, Lord, so much of this being ultimately your work. Lord, we, we ask that you would um, just unleash your spirit on us, that our lives may be reflective of you, in tremendous ways. Lord, that our households can be uh, filled with peace in this time. 
Lord, that for family members and those who are struggling, our coworkers and those that are around us that are struggling along with us, Lord, carrying this burden of the pandemic along with us, Lord, that we can be agents of reconciliation by our love for one another. That as we share the gospel, that our lives can embody you, however imperfectly, that we can say, Spirit, so deep into us, Lord, so your word deep into us that from the inside all the way to the outside that we'll be radically transformed into your image. Lord, may repentance of sin be just be commonplace in our life. May we have the humility to repent to those around us when we are living with ourselves at the center. And Lord, just as you were willing to, to be crucified and to die, Lord, as Paul directs us to a same death even now that we will be crucified to our own flesh, and live according to your spirit. Lord, may we walk away willing for that challenge more so than ever before in our lives. But Lord, we need your help and we invite your help into our life. Thank you, Jesus, for your word that is always challenging and convicting to us. And uh, may its seeds be sown deep in us this morning. We pray this in your wonderful, glorious, and almighty name. Amen.